0: I'm Will Howell. I'm Anthony Fowler.
1: And I'm Viola Giuda, and this is not another politics podcast. So maybe it's time to talk a little bit about how voters vote, how they decide whom to support, whom to oppose. This seemed to be a recurring theme in our podcast where we talk about what the voters know about the economy, what the voters know about politicians and their stance on different policies, and how they translate what they know or do not know into whom they are supporting. How did this all start? How did political science get interested in this question? And and what was sort of the big impetus to, to start thinking about these issues?
0: A big place where this all started was at the University of Michigan in the 1950s a group of political scientists who did something that political scientists hadn't done a lot of before. They said, let's actually go out and collect a lot of data. Let's run a bunch of surveys. Instead of just kind of pontificating from our offices about what we think, we're going to actually find out what do people know, what do people think. This was, in some ways, this great scientific achievement. To let's, let's go to measure things that hadn't been measured in a really rigorous and systematic way before. And so we've decided, I didn't pick it. I want to say that I, I'm not the person who, decide, <laughs> who, who proposed this. I'm convinced that we'll pick this just to just to rile me up. Yes. But the, the the thing that we're gonna do today, which is different from a normal format, is we're gonna talk about a classic, a truly classic. Um, it's a it's actually a chapter from an edited volume written in 1964 by Phil Commerce. And if I just say Converse 1964 it's a political scientist. they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a chapter that um, has been extremely influential in the field of political science. It's shaped the way the generations of scholars have thought about things. And it has something like 11,000 academic citations, which is a, a crude way that we measure the impact of something, which is how many subsequent scholars have actually cited this in some way in their own research. So that's going to be our tall task for the day, which is, uh, there's going to be a lot to say about it, but this, this very hefty, influential, classic piece of political science research.
2: It is hefty. I mean, the chapter runs north nearly 60 pages long. It covers all kinds of things ranging from conceptualizations about what political sophistication is to offering a set of uh, findings about how people are or are not politically sophisticated in terms of their views about the positions that they hold, their ability to reason from first principles. And in the background of all this are concerns about democracy, you know, whether or not citizens are up to the task of keeping a democracy kind of alive and well. I mean, rereading it, you're right. Like, this is the first thing that we get assigned in, or one of the first things that we get assigned in American politics seminars in graduate school. And so I hadn't read it in a while, but
0: it is a tour de force. Um, if- <laughs> is, you know, I forgot to say what the title is. We should just oh, say yeah. what the title is. It's, an it's not title. a modest title, right? It's a- <laughs> no, no, no. The Nature
2: of Belief Systems in Mass Publics. So there it is. I mean, the nature of belief systems, I mean, it's, it's, it professes to be a descriptive piece in which he's simply trying to step forward and to say, we're going to take stock of what people know and how they reason if they reason. And it's about belief systems, the extent to which people's views are constrained, which for converse is the hallmark of political sophistication, by which he means that your views on one issue are going to be connected to your views on another. And your views on one issue today are going to be connected on your to your views on that same issue tomorrow. And that there's this sort of hierarchical dimension, which is that there are these general abstract principles. It might be notions of equality, it might be notions of liberalism that inform the particular views that you have on individual policies and that these things hang together. Like your, what it means to have your ideological house in order is not that, that you just sort of fire off at the hip or think imaginatively. And yes, I am for uh, a woman's right to choose. And I also think that, you know, corporate tax cuts should, should be reduced to zero. That he'd say, wait, wait, no, there actually is a kind of connection between those two issues. And the polit- politically sophisticated person would see those connections and how you come out on one issue would inform how you come out on another. And you'd be reasonably stable over time in what your views are. That's what it means to be politically sophisticated, right? So like he's, he's postulating that right out of the gates. And it might be worth us kind of lingering on that point. I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you guys think about whether or not you guys think those are
0: the right hallmarks or ro- so right ways of characterizing political sophistication. You know, this converse piece that we're that we're talking about was really the forefather of all of the subsequent things we've discussed on our podcast where people say, oh, look, voters are idiots and therefore democracy is broken. And so just, you know, at the outset... My inclination is almost – my inclination is a skeptical one at the very outset just because it already starts to sound like a pretty elitist argument to say, you know, here's here's my very narrow definition of what it means to be a reasonable, sophisticated voter. Now, it's funny to think about, you know, who is this egomaniac who thinks that he knows what, you know, what what it means to be politically sophisticated. So, there's there's a little bit of that. I know that the political science gods are going to smoke me right now because Phil Converse is, <laughs> you know, is one of the giants of the discipline. Uh, but already, I feel like before we even get into the evidence, I'm thinking, you know, that's, that's my thought reading this piece is like, okay, this, this better be really good. That's my thought because... Okay, so I think it really is good. I
2: mean, it may well be elitist. And in fact, it decidedly is, it is both elitist. in its conceptualization and in the findings he presents, decidedly so. But he has a real argument that we have to grapple with. So, I mean, does this survey, right, these surveys, he shows that the views that you have on an issue at one period are loosely correlated with the views you have in another. And, curiously, that if you look over three periods of time, the views that you have two periods are out are correlated at the same level as the views you have one period out. Which, again, is if what you think is going on is that there's a trajectory or that people are learning or, or really reflecting on policy, that ought not to be the case. It ought to be those that are most closely proximate that you see higher correlations than when if you go further apart. So that's one piece of evidence. Another piece is that the views that you express on one policy issue are loosely correlated with the views that you express on other policy issues. And I think here the argument flowing from his uh, claims about what it means to be politically sophisticated is that, no, if you take a position on one issue, that has implications for, logically, uh, for the, the position that you ought to take on another. And that you see those are weakly correlated, suggests that people aren't thinking things through. And then the third big piece of evidence is that notions of what it means to be liberal or what it means to be conservative, when you engage people, they have very little to say about it. They don't really know what these things are. or They take just a sliver of it. And that those seem to weakly constrain the policy positions
0: that people actually articulate. Okay, so let's take some of those. Can we take some of those in turn one at a time? Um, the last one that you mentioned, Bill, which is I think the first one in the, in the chapter, which is you ask people in a survey what do you think of john f kennedy or what do you think of richard nixon or what do you think whatever you know and then or what do you think of the republican party and then you see in some qualitative sense do they seem to be making reference to an ideological dimension or do they seem to be saying things that are somewhat idiosyncratic you know i like him because he matches my ideology he's a liberal and i'm a liberal then that means you're politically sophisticated whereas if you say something like well, I, I think he's I think he's a smart guy, and I and I you know I think I like his proposal on taxes or something that's less ideological in his mind. And then if you say something like, well, yeah, I think he's going to be good for small business owners. That's that's not very ideological. That, that then you're kind of doing the group based thinking. And then you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's not it's not clear to me that sophistication means that you make reference to ideology explicitly when you're talking about politics. If anything, I would actually think that's a fairly naive person who says, oh, I like this person because I'm a liberal and I'm told that they're a liberal and therefore I'm supposed to like them. And I would actually think a much more thoughtful answer is a substantive one, which says, you know, I, you know, I, like, I like what they have to say on some of these issues. Um, they seem like a competent person. to say. You know." So it's not obvious that just that because you're a sophisticated, reasonable voter, you're going to make reference to some ideological dimension. You're going to be talking about liberalism, conservatism, socialism, et cetera.
2: But what he has in mind is not just that you reference liberal or conservative; it's that liberal and conservative has meaning for you that you can articulate, that you can uh, expound upon. It isn't just, "Well, I'm I'm a liberal and he's a liberal, and so there I go reflexively." It's, "I'm a liberal, and as a liberal, I see a more capacious role for the state in attending to the welfare of average citizens," and then you start saying, "Oh, that's somebody who has a kind of a world view," that then there's going to be a greater correspondence in our policy preferences as well. And so that's the stuff of somebody who is more sophisticated than is somebody who says, I like him because I think that the economy will do better. That that that's maybe you do, but based on what and where does that come from? That's just sort of the sign of somebody who hasn't thought things through. So that's
0: converse. Maybe. I mean, that seems like a, that's to me, that seems like a perfectly good reason to vote for someone to say, I think the economy will do better under this particular candidate. That seems like totally reasonable. Just because someone doesn't use the particular buzzwords that we think they should use doesn't mean they aren't ideological or they don't have values that they care about, right? Somebody might say, this candidate just seems like an honest person and it seems like they have the right values and they, they may not even know Ter- what with, with the term liberal or conservative means in this particular context, but they know that I like what that person has to say.
1: So I, I think I disagree with, with just his definition, Converse's definition of political sophistication. If you ask me, am I liberal? Am I conservative? I think I will tell you something but it's not because I truly finally understand the world and can place myself in, in, in this ideological line and that's why I suddenly realized that you know I should vote one way or another it's just I had some set of beliefs. I, I instinctively felt that some policies were good for me or for the world and some policies were bad and then once I became more educated I realized there is this sort of you know <laughs> line that people tend to put themselves on and I tried to fit myself there So this this worldview came later. But I don't think this worldview made me a better um, voter.
0: You know, imagine somebody who watches a political debate and pays attention to a campaign and reads news articles. They're they're going to weigh all these competing considerations and they're going to decide which candidate they believe is better for them. They might be perfectly well-informed. They might have lots of well-thought-out views on lots of different issues. And they might have no idea what it means to say that you're a liberal versus conservative versus libertarian versus something else. And yet they still have decided that on net they prefer this candidate over another one. To, to say that that person is unsophisticated or non-ideological see, strikes me as naive and unfair to that person. When, when in fact, I mean, most of us, it would be ridiculous to say, I mean, none of us make a voting decision by saying, okay, I know that my ideology score is a negative 0. 0.7 and I know that Elizabeth Warren <laughs> is a negative 1.2. And, and and like nobody does that. Of course, what you do is you actually listen to what they have to say. You try to, you try to weigh competing considerations and think about which candidate you think is going to do the best job. And then this whole ideology thing is something that political scientists talk about later when we're trying to come up with a simple parsimonious explanation for how people behave. There's one other point that I want to make, which might be a recurring point. What if you're a moderate? And in fact, we know from, we have lots of good evidence now that suggests that most Americans- are ideologically moderate, at least relative to the political politicians that are typically running for office. They're ideologically between them. And so what are you supposed to do when they say, which candidate do you prefer? Well, you're going to talk about, you might talk about other non-ideological things like, well, which candidate do I think is the most competent person? Which person? And it's not because I don't care about policy, you know, like the kind of the left-right policy dimension. It's just that I'm kind of in between the candidates on that. And so it makes sense for me to decide based on something else. So I can see in our conversation
2: that My role is to champion Converse, so I'm going to take you to do that, right? Because, look, his primary intention is not to figure out how people cast votes. That's not what he's looking at in the main. What he's looking at primarily is the constellation of people's views on policy issues and the extent to which they are consistent over time. They're correlated with each other, and they link up to higher notions hierarchically, in one's belief system about, and they could be liberalism, conservatism, they could be notions of egalitarianism, individualism, any number of things. A thing that he he shows is that kinds of people who behave in the way that he says are politically sophisticated, you guys don't like that definition, but the kinds of people who do behave in that way, it's a small segment of the public, tend to be better educated, tend to have more knowledge about facts, which is further evidence that this is consistent with somebody who's being considered in their judgment. And it's perfectly fine to be moderate on a particular policy issue. But if you're moderate on one issue, and you're extreme on another, and you're bouncing all over the place, right, then then he would say, since I'm walking arm in arm with him, I will say, that's on average a sign that somebody hasn't actually thought things through. I mean, it could be in principle. We could imagine a really imaginative person who says, well, I change my mind all the time. I think I see all the intricacies of one issue and, and how it distinguishes itself from another issue. And therefore, that's right. Nothing's correlated with anything. But that's, that's the sign of just how deep I am in my thinking. And he, he's saying, not so much. Uh, I, I don't buy that. Not on average. You might find such a person, but not on average. The person who behaves that way is somebody who's just shooting from the hip.
0: I'll try something. Will, you're going to be our research subject just for a moment. You imagine that you're, you're, you're a subject in the American National Election Study. And I come along and I say, Professor Howe, what do you think of Donald Trump? What do you say to me? Oh, I have so many things to say. <laughs>
1: Please, Please do not say all of them here.
2: <laughs> I would say... So the, first, the first couple sentences that pop into your head. The first couple months is that he's a populist who has had a profound impact on the trajectory of the Republican Party. And who is in the policy positions he takes in some ways is traditionally conservative.
0: Oh, this is not, this is not, you're, you're, this you're, is not, not lying. Right. you're lying for the sake of the show. What you would say, what I would say, <laughs> I'll say well, what I would say is, you know, he's an old senile idiot who's a blowhard and a narcissist and, you know, and of course, I mean, of course, like there's things you can say about his policy positions and his ideology, but the first 10 things you would say probably have nothing to do with ideology. Okay, so fair. Yes. And then no, can would be saying point. I'm an unsophisticated, non ideological voter Because the first 10 things that popped in my head weren't ideological. That's right. So I think
2: a lot, (laughs) I mean, a lot hinges. This isn't a question about the particular findings of one study. It has to do with the technology they're deploying, which are these surveys. And are we tapping into in these surveys their true views, right? Or are we selling them short somehow, right? And that's, I mean, this is something we've talked about on the show as well. It's like, what are we actually learning from what people articulate in the context of a survey? But I guess what I'm standing up for in this context is the notion that one's ability to see connections across issues is uh, evidence on average of how much you've thought about it.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk about that. So let's talk about the issues for a second. So that's another big part of Congress analysis, which is... Let's look at how people respond to these different issue questions, these different policy questions. Most of them are kind of binary questions. Do you support something or oppose something? And we're just going to see how correlated they are. And it turns out that for congressional candidates, you get very high correlations, right? So today, if you ask congressional candidates about their views on gay marriage and about their views on, you know, whether we should raise or lower taxes, there'd be a very strong correlation. But if you ask members of the general public, there's a weaker, maybe still a positive correlation, but a weaker correlation. He calls that constraint, and the implication is that because that the public is less constrained in their positions, that they're, in some ways, they're less ideological and they're less sophisticated. I don't, I don't buy that either. So there is, of course, I mean, for some policy areas, there are logical connections between them. There are logical connections between how much we tax, how much we spend, and how, and how much deficit we, and how much, how much debt we take on. Those things are all related to each other. And so it'd be unreasonable to say we should spend more, tax less, and also, you know, reduce the debt but to say that i think i support gay marriage but i think we should have you know lower taxes that's a perfectly reasonable set of positions that a, a perfectly sensible reasonable person could have i don't feel i don't feel comfortable saying that they're unconstrained because they have their policy preferences happen to not be correlated in the same way that congressional candidates positions are correlated by the way. I mean, if you're going to pick a set of completely crazy people, let's pick congressional, like, <laughs> like to benchmark the public against congressional candidates. Like, like that, that doesn't make any sense. Those people are
2: not jealous. Okay. So, but this is why the paper is like a triple threat. I mean, it is true, <laughs> right? It is true that, I mean, that's a good example in that like, it is, You can rationalize taking the two positions that you've articulated in all kinds of ways that somebody, by his own definition, would be seen as being kind of politically sophisticated. But it's also true that seeing very little relationship between those issues might be evidence uh, that people are just kind of providing an answer that's just willy nilly. Right. That's that's possible. But that's why he then comes in and says, but your views that you have over time, we don't see stability there either. The views that you are expressing on one particular issue don't seem to be correlated with some higher notion. Uh, and again, I mean, this is his kind of language, some some ideological category. Um, and that the kind of person you were describing, for the most part, isn't coming forward and articulating a view that rationalizes their position across these two issues. And meanwhile, there are other issues that are logically connected. Right? Your, your views about the debt and your views about taxes ought to be correlated. They ought to be, they ought to be linked. Um, and if they're not, that's a, that's a, that's a sign that something is, is awry.
1: These changes in people's views over time that Converse uh, documented, that was, I think, the, the, the sort of most convincing evidence in my mind of, of some sort of lack of sophistication voters. I'm going to go back to my
0: refrain for one second, which is, what if you're a moderate? And in fact, lots of people are moderates. I mean, the fact that lots of people are moderates could explain most of these findings, right? So suppose you're 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 being asked a bunch of these binary questions like, you know, should we raise the minimum wage to twelve dollars an hour? And suppose your position really is like yeah twelve dollars an hour that's roughly maybe I don't know, maybe that's maybe it should be eleven, maybe it should be twelve, maybe twelve, fifty, maybe ten fifty. I don't know somewhere in there. Suppose you really are kind of a moderate and that's that's roughly your position. On one day you might say yes. on another day you might say no. And does that mean that you're unsophisticated or unreasonable? No, it means that the question just happens to kind of put you right at a point where you're just about indifferent between the two options. But so your objection is a measurement
2: objection, not a conceptual one. You you are taking to task, not just the use of surveys, but the, the crafting of certain kinds of questions that disadvantage moderates. I, and I think you're exactly right on, in, in, according to the test that he's putting forward. But if you were to use... Let's say we, we came forward and we simply asked people, what do you think the minimum wage ought to be? And the moderates were free to say whatever they wanted. And then we asked them, you know, two months later, what do you think the minimum wage ought to be? With that kind of question that gets around this objection that you have, if you, if you saw a weak correlation between one's answers, someday I say $12, other times I say $37, and other times I say we ought to eliminate the minimum wage that would be no wouldn't that be a sign of somebody who hasn't thought it
0: through most likely that isn't yes a sign of i mean somebody of course these people can change their minds obviously but yes i mean i suspect what you would find if you did that and uh, as far as i know nobody has done exactly that exercise that would be an interesting thing to do um i suspect you would find that yes people vacillate a little bit but people aren't dramatically people much are more completely speaking. right hey if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on
2: this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not, isn't working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Anthony, what is the finding that convinces you that people are not politically sophisticated? <laughs> What's the fact that you
0: say, okay, you got me? <laughs> Well, are you asking me hypothetically what could they show me that would convince me? I think is that the is that the version of the question that you want to ask? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen the really convincing evidence. I mean, let me flip it around for a second and tell you. There's lots of evidence that I've seen in the other direction that convinces me that while voters are certainly not ideal in the sense that they they're they're not you know they're not embodying the perfect ideal of democracy they are still behaving reasonably and they're sensible and they care about policy and they're not driven purely by identity and they're ideologically moderate. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that we, could, that we could put forward on that front. One other form of that evidence just comes from aggregate election outcomes. So we see in the aggregate, ignoring what you see in the survey data, in the aggregate, it looks like on average competent candidates do better, ideologically moderate candidates do better, experienced candidates do better, it looks like, it looks like voters respond to performance in the ways that you might expect and effort. And so, so all of those things reassure me. Even if it is true that there's some number of voters who are kind of unsophisticated and hyperpartisan or say crazy things in surveys, it turns out to not matter a whole lot when we think about the overall health of democracy. And that's something that the, you know, that Converse and the rest of the Michigan school did not do much of. They did not spend a lot of time. But how do we square what we're seeing in the surveys with what's happening in, in aggregate elections? So to flip that around, I mean, to to try to better answer your question, Will, if you showed me convincing evidence that, in fact, better candidates don't do better in elections, that the parties could completely change their policy proposals and they would still get the exact same people voting for them because people don't really care about policy and they just vote for the same party in some kind of naive way. If you showed me that politicians don't ever have any incentive to work hard or to moderate their positions and so forth, you know, I mean, all of those things would be, then, then that would be, okay, that would be pretty troubling evidence and I would say, yes, I'm I'm really worried about this and converse was converse was right and maybe democracy is doomed if you should, you know. But um, that's not what the evidence looks like.
1: You know, because I like Will's question of what evidence would convince you, but, but in a sense, uh, we should perhaps stop asking this question because what matters is uh, the outcomes. So why should we spend our time really trying to devise this perfect test that probably doesn't exist of whether the voters is sophisticated or not? Instead, we should be looking at, do elections seem to be working on average? Uh, do better politicians are re-elected and worse politicians voted out of office? I think, to me, this is the central question and not the question of how do we actually sort of uh, adjudicate between those two counts, voters are sophisticated and voters are not.
2: So I want to, I want to stand up for Congress again. Um, that's all I'm doing today. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 part of the... Part of the critique that's being offered here is the suggestion that he wrote the wrong paper. He's not asking the questions that you guys think he ought to be asking, which have to do with one's ability to cast the right vote. Or he's looking at within people's heads individually, and that's not where the action is. I think part of the critiques I'm hearing have to do with what people did with these findings going forward, that they drew a set of conclusions that shouldn't be drawn. And the, and to which I, I guess I would say that what he's doing in this paper is a, like a really big deal and then he's actually much more nuanced than we're giving him credit for. He comes down in a hard way and says, here's exactly what I mean by sophistication. But he walks through precisely what he means by it. You may not like that definition, but then it's incumbent upon you to come up with a different definition about what then political sophistication is by, and how might we measure it. But by his own definition, there's a reasonable correspondence between what he's saying at the front end and the measures he puts forward going um, on the back end. There's a whole question about how that translates into behavior, and there he has much less to say, and people have run with his findings in, in ways that weren't constrained, right? that were really uh, problematic. But that's a, that's a critique of the subsequent studies, not of Converse 1964, as a piece of scholarship that's saying, are people, person by person, organized in their thinking? Because I think that that's a, a sign of how considered their views are. There's not much evidence of that when you measure it in these kinds of ways. That's a big
0: deal. No? I'm not so willing to give him pass. I think, uh, you know, I think he could have written the paper that said, you know, here's some interesting correlations. It turns out that these, 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 these correlations across issues are much stronger for elites and for congressional candidates and for members of the public. Isn't that interesting? Let's think of, here's five reasons why that might be the case. And let's think about why that might be the case. And honestly, you know, okay. And that's... That paper, that chapter does not get 11,000 citations going forward. Instead, he chose to wrote the provocative version of this, of this study, which is look at all these idiots who are unconstrained and their, their thinking isn't organized. And they basically don't even have any meaningful ideology. They don't even have any meaningful policy. They're, they're non-attitudes that these people have. That's, what, that's why this is such a famous piece. And, and so, and, and yes, people have run with it and yes, people have done crazy things, but he's, he's responsible for that. I mean, he came out and said these things. He said that he said he was measuring whether people were constrained and sophisticated. And he said, oh, look, they're not when that just doesn't follow from the evidence that he showed. So I'm, 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 I'm blaming him to some extent for, for the, for the way that people have run with this. And, uh, you know, maybe there were even career mode, career incentives to do that. But I think that, that set us down a pretty bad path in my opinion.
1: Can I give you my uh, bottom line and then I will run because I have to run? deal what's your bottom line sorry for that <laughs> so my bottom line is that um like movies you should read papers when they come out because when you read them you know 50 years later they 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 feel differently so you know my example is pretty woman i saw pretty woman for the first time i guess 20 years after it came out and did not it, not so pretty so <laughs> reading converse in the, uh, 2021 um <laughs> okay. So, joke, joking aside, I, I want to say I, I think I'm with Will in a sense that I appreciate, um, the novelty and I appreciate also that perhaps it was harder to measure the other thing that we want to measure. So the impact of, of, you know, economy and whatever happens, uh, to us on, on how we vote. And, and, and perhaps it was even harder to immediately think that this is the right thing to measure. So I completely appreciate the novelty, but definitely the ideas aged quite a bit in my mind. So.
0: <laughs> bye guys Bye, well i'm gonna throw something out there maybe you know this is this is a personal detail that maybe we shouldn't be talking about too publicly but you and i wrote a paper we submitted to a journal we got referee reports back we got a rejection just just a couple weeks ago it was very recent very fresh in our minds and we so nice. one of our one of our anonymous referees actually told us Without seriously engaging with our paper or our findings in, in any really meaningful way or giving any specific critiques about what we did wrong, they just said, your study just can't be right. That's what they said to us. Your study can't be right. And the reason it can't be right is because if it were right, that would mean that converse is wrong. Yeah. They actually wrote this in their information. and that was that was kind of that was the the, the 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 brunt of their critique of our paper. So this this thing really does have legs. This conference converse from 1964 is so dogmatic in the minds of any political scientist that a new finding that goes against it uh, is rejected out of hand, as if as if this was you know Newton's laws, and and that, and that is
2: nonsense, right? It obviously is not Newton's laws. I, I would also say, like in a variety of ways, this article, this chapter, has not been good for political science, some having to do with the fueling of the irresponsible claims about the relationship between what goes on in individual minds as we understand them and the health of democracy. That that, that space is really kind of a mess uh, in our our discipline. Um, And also, I think any time some subfield uh, has a set of deities that limits and constrains and undermines the production of new knowledge. And that's really a problem. What I was struck by rereading this though, was how the writing didn't strike me as dogmatic. It was actually really thoughtful. And then it was worth rereading. So I come out differently than Viola in that it's not that I I don't think I updated my views about these particular issues, having reread it, but I came away thinking that this was a, this was not a gimmick of a paper or a a paper that was just designed to kind of generate a bunch of publicity, uh, short-term publicity that would map into Converse's own short-term career incentives.
0: This is something to reckon with. So yeah, Converse, Converse, and the rest of the Michigan school, they did some great things for the field. They, they did make an effort to systematically collect data on the information that voters have and the positions they have. And they are probably responsible for rigorous, careful quantitative analysis being such an important part of political science to the extent that it is. So they, they deserve a lot of credit. At the same time, for all the reasons we've discussed, they, they deserve a lot of blame for setting us off on some of these, what I think of as the wrong paths. And there are a bunch of different directions we could have gone after this. We could have said, you know, you know Converse had some really provocative findings and let's go back to the beginning and think about, is that really the right way that we should conceptualize sophistication? And let's think about different ones. Or is that really the right way to measure these things? Let's come up with better measurements and let's, and that's not really the way that we went. Instead, there were lots of kind of copycats, right? There were lots of people who were like, this is, I'm going to run with this. I'm going to, you know, we're going to replicate this, but we're going to do it on a bunch of new issues. And we're going to, you know, you get to sit in your ivory tower and you get to analyze the data. And you can say, look at how stupid the voters are. They don't have the same opinions that I think they should have, and therefore democracy is broken. That's a ridiculous argument. But I think in a world in which Converse had written this slightly differently, maybe this is less famous and less impactful, but, it, but the field as a whole is better off because we're set off in a slightly better, more thoughtful direction. I mean, I kind of wonder, like, what was going on? Did he
2: think he was launching a thousand ships? Or was he asked to write a chapter? for an edited volume in the way that you get asked to write a chapter for an edited volume and you think, all right, I'll put together my thoughts as best I can
0: see them, right? I'm sure you're right. I'm sure they did not at the time think about like they are launching, they are starting this thing that's going to last for a hundred years and, you know, I even wonder, the thing I like to think about is the day when, you know, I imagine there was some phone call between, you know, Angus Campbell and... Anthony Downs or some, you know, some of these important people. And they were like, what what question should we ask on this survey? And it was, somebody had the idea, like, why don't we ask people what party they identify with? Right. <laughs> and that right. might have even just been like a throwaway, like offhanded. That's a reasonable thing to ask. And we've been stuck with it ever since. Somehow the way they phrased that question and the way that, that's, that's, that became the object of investigation. I mean, that's something we've we talked about a little bit on this podcast, but in a lot of subfields of political science, the object of investigation becomes how people answer the survey question rather than like, let's actually try to understand like what people are thinking and what motivates them and what determines, you know, what influences their behavior and their thoughts. Instead, it's like, you know, you, there are people who say they are experts on party ID, like meaning the NDS party ID question. And that's the thing they really, you know, anyway, that's another rant for another day. But, uh, but yes, I'm sure they made lots of decisions that turned out to be very consequential that at the time they had no idea what they were doing. And that was not their intent.
2: They were looking over. I think, I mean, if, if we want to be generous, we'd say they're looking over their, at their shoulder and reacting to a bunch of kind of armchair intellectuals who are just holding forth. This is what I say. This is what I think. And, and they want to say, no, you don't get to do that and call yourself a social scientist. And um, that's okay. great impulse. That that's instinct a, that's a, was that's a good a instinct. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast.
1: Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodapp. Thanks for listening.